the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Mm, for many of us, we have very vivid memories of uh, when we first heard about the events that were taking place in three separate locations, the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and Shanksville. We didn't know what was happening at the time, but we knew something ominous was afoot. Well, today we collectively across the country have solemnly marked the anniversary of September 11, 2001, attack on our nation. When 2,977 innocents, mostly American citizens, were murdered by 19 Islamic fascists. In keeping with the presidential uh, proclamation, flags have flown at half-staff in memory of those who perished. And there have been prayers offered for the families of the World Trade Center, Pentagon, and Shanksville victims, and for their armed forces, who now, 18 years on, continue to serve on the front lines of this long war to contain Islamic terrorism. From 9-11 to this very date... The U.S. has thwarted, thwarted rather, well over 100 planned Islamic attacks on the country. We must remain vigilant to avoid another attack similar to this one. 17 years ago, 18 now, 19 terrorists hijacked four planes, used them to attack the United States. Almost 3,000 were murdered. It was the deadliest attack in American history and certainly on American soil. Following that tragic day, the U.S. tragic dramatically changed the way it approached terrorism. New government agencies and departments were created, like the Department of Homeland Security, the National Counterterrorism Center. Existing departments took on new or expanded responsibilities, like the FBI's National Security Branch. Every American was made aware of the evil that and the harm that adherence to this worldview wished upon the United States. U.S. undertook new efforts to stop terrorism from public security measures like the Transportation Security Administration, or TSA, to intelligence programs that were created by Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Yet, as we moved to increase our security, terrorists were thinking up new ways to attack our way of life, and that uh, innovation continues. Since that dark day, some 18 years ago, the U.S. homeland has faced 104 terrorist plots or attacks. Uh, Initially, the main target was military facilities and uniformed personnel, but over time, the terrorists shifted their targets toward mass public gatherings. Initially, it was al-Qaeda that radicalized and recruited terrorists, but by 2014, terrorists were almost entirely inspired by the Islamic State. The most active period of terrorist activity was 2015 to 2016. But with the defeat of the so-called caliphate, the number of terror plots dramatically declined from 17 plots and attacks in 2015 to only three in 2018. In light of all these changes, uh, the question remains, is America safer today than in 2001? The answer is affirmative. There is no question we are safer today. Our progress has been uneven. Threats to America have waxed and waned, and the world overall has grown less stable. But the U.S. counterterrorism enterprise is leaps and bounds ahead of where it once was. Well, the system will not stop all terrorism. No system ever will be perfect. But it has stopped 87 out of 104 efforts, plots by Islamist terrorists, and made it much harder for terrorists to carry out large, complex attacks. But even as terrorism appears to recede, we can't rest on our laurels. There are still lessons to be learned, improvements to be made, and efforts that must be redoubled. We learned the hard way with al-Qaeda and ISIS that when given room, Islamist terrorism can spread across the world and ultimately attack us right here at home. It was a hard lesson and a painful lesson to learn. And so the U.S. has to continue to prevent terrorists from establishing safe havens abroad. We should improve our aviation security by looking to other countries and the private sector for lessons and greater efficiency and continue to stress the importance of lawful intelligence programs that help the U.S. stop terrorists before they strike. Congress should reform its oversight of the Department of Homeland Security so that our security officials get clear guidance from Congress that lets them spend more time keeping America safe. There are many things the U.S. can and should do to make the homeland safer. On the 18th anniversary of 9-11, we should remember the fallen and, through our policies, make sure such a horrific attack never happens again. One hopes that's where we are today. Well, 18 years after that Tuesday morning, uh, the president of the United States today says 
is uh, the memory is seared into our soul. The nation paused to solemnly mark the events of 9-11, the terror attacks, and the nearly 3,000 who were lost but never forgotten. We hope never forgotten. Morning ceremonies were held today at Ground Zero, the Pentagon, and Flight 93 National Memorial near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And this year is the first time the names of each are being read in the presence of a new bittersweet section of the 9-11 Memorial, one honoring the growing list of first responders who've passed away from illnesses diagnosed in the aftermath of the attacks. For every American who lived through that day, the September 11th attack is seared into our souls, the president said during a ceremony at the Pentagon. It was a day filled with shock, horror, sorrow, and righteous fury. He added, for the families who join us, this is your anniversary of personal and permanent loss. It is the day that uh, has replayed in our memory a thousand times over. The last kiss, the last phone call, the last hearing, those precious words, I love you. Trump is a native of New York. He said that he and First Lady Melania united with the survivors in their grief. We come here in the knowledge that we cannot erase the pain or reverse the evil of that dark and wretched day. But we offer you all that we have, our unwavering loyalty, our undying devotion and our eternal pledge that your loved ones will never, ever be forgotten. We bring it up every year at this time because we want to keep that pledge to never ever forget. But that requires an effort on our part. And this is ours. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. We want to give away a copy of Stephen Curtis Chapman's autobiography, Between Heaven and the Real World, and... Perhaps most importantly, two tickets to Stephen Curtis Chapman's acoustic Christmas concert that's coming up on Sunday, December 15th, 7 o'clock p.m., Rolling Hills Community Church in Tualatin. We'd love to give this packet of gifts away to caller number four and the number to call 800-845-2162, 800-845-2162. Again, caller number four. The concert is Sunday, December 15th, 7 o'clock p.m. at Rolling Hills Church. You can find all the important details at kpdq.com. Stephen Curtis Chapman's Acoustic Christmas. All right. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines and a major victory for both the president and national Republicans, North Carolina GOP state Senator Dan Bishop was projected and did win a fiercely contested special U.S. House election for the 9th District that was widely seen as a bellwether for the president's chances in the 2020 election. And another Republican House candidate, Greg Murphy, decisively won a separate special election in North Carolina's more solidly GOP-leaning 3rd District earlier Tuesday evening, frustrating Democrats who spent millions trying to make a splash in that state. And a large crop of potential candidates for national security advisor is emerging following John Bolton's abrupt exit from the White House on Tuesday. At least seven people are believed to be on that list in the mix. They include, according to multiple sources, Rick Grenell, U.S. ambassador to Germany, Brian Hook, U.S. Um, special representative for Iran, Stephen Bengun, uh, who's a special representative for North Korea, Pete Hoekstra, U.S. Uh, to the Netherlands, and Rob Blair, an aide to of White House um, chief of staff. Mick Mulvaney. Grinnell may be an early favorite as a a source close to the discussion said multiple senators have called the White House on his behalf. For the time being, however, the White House announced that Deputy National Security Advisor Charles Cooperman would assume Bolton's duties on an interim basis. And Americans uh, will reflect and did on the 18th years that have passed since the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks that changed the nation forever. Victims' relatives uh, were at ground zero at the World Trade Center in New York City while the president joined the observance at the Pentagon. Uh, And you can see much of that observation throughout the day. Desperation mounted in the Bahamas on Tuesday as Hurricane Dorian survivors arrived in the capital by boat and plane were turned away from overflowing shelters. Government officials gave assurance at a news conference that more shelters would be opened as needed. Hurricane Dorian devastated Abaco and Grand Bahama Islands in the northern part of the archipelago a week ago, leaving at least 50 dead, with a toll certain to rise as the search for bodies continues. Nearly 5,000 people have arrived in Nassau by plane and by boat, and many were struggling to start new lives, unclear of how or where to begin. More than 2,000 of them were staying in shelters, according to government figures. And New England Patriots wide receiver Antonio Brown sexually assaulted and raped a former trainer in three separate incidents in 2017 and 2018, according to a federal civil lawsuit filed Tuesday in Florida. Brittany Taylor alleges that he assaulted her twice in June of 2017 while they were training together and that he forcibly 
assaulted her almost a year later in May of 2018, according to court documents. His attorney said uh, late Tuesday his client denies each and every allegation and refuses to be the victim of what he believes to be a money grab. A rocket exploded at the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan just minutes into Wednesday, the anniversary of 9-11-2001 attack on the United States. A plume of smoke rose over central Kabul shortly after midnight and sirens could be heard. Inside the embassy, employees heard their, uh, this message over the loudspeaker. An explosion caused by a rocket has occurred on compound. About an hour later, the all-clear was given with no injuries reported. It was the first major attack in the Afghan capital since President Trump abruptly called off U.S. Taliban talks over the weekend on the brink of an apparent deal to end America's longest war. U.S. intelligence officials, past and present, offered harsh criticism Tuesday of a CNN report on the handling of a high-level U.S. informant in the upper reaches of Russian President Vladimir Putin's Kremlin, warning that even discussing sensitive details of the case put U.S. security and future intelligence operations at risk. And the FBI arrested one of the top administrators of FEMA and the CEO of a contractor on wire fraud and bribery charges, along with a lower level FEMA official for fraud and bribery involving Hurricane Maria relief. The contractor got a $1.8 billion contract for rebuilding Puerto Rico's notoriously unreliable electric infrastructure, which the Department of Justice says came by way of bribery. And China's Ministry of Finance announced plans to exempt 16 types of U.S. products from additional tariffs on Wednesday, including food for livestock, cancer drugs, and lubricants. The exception, which is scheduled to go into effect on the 17th of this month, will be valid for a year through September 16th, 2020. The announcement comes as high-level trade officials from China and the U.S. prepare to meet in Washington next month. And background checks for gun sales, concealed carry permits, and security uh, spiked in August as congressional Democrats renewed their push for expanded gun control in the wake of several mass shootings. The National Instant Criminal Background Check System recorded a 15.5% uptick in background checks last month, according to the National Shooting Sports Foundation. The number of Americans without health insurance climbed to 27.5 million in 2018, according to federal data that show the first year-to-year increase in a decade before the Affordable Air, uh, Care Act began reducing the ranks of the uninsured. The number of uninsured rose by nearly 2 million people overall, the Census Bureau said, which is about how many fewer people were covered under Medicaid compared with the uh, 2017 numbers. The number of people covered by private insurance didn't significantly change. Hasbro officially brought the gender pay gap uh, by, to game night with its new feminist version of Monopoly called Ms. Monopoly. The new version of the classic board game comes with new rules. Women players uh, will collect $240 in Monopoly money, while male players will only collect 200 Apparently, we're so needy that we need the boost. Women also collect $1,900 in Monopoly money from the banker player at the beginning of the game, while men collect 1500 Last week, Boston mother Maureen Maloney was booed while testifying about the death of her son, Matthew Denise, uh, who was killed in 2011 by a drunk driving illegal with a criminal history. Maloney was testifying at the, the state house in opposition to a bill seeking to grant driver's licenses to illegal immigrants. At the start of her testimony, she held up a photo of her son, recalling how he was killed by an illegal immigrant drunk behind the wheel. About halfway into her three-minute testimony, a man behind her booed the grieving mother, the Boston Herald reported. And on this day in history, 2001, America is changed forever. When 19 Al-Qaeda terrorists, uh, a coordinated attack, hijacked four passenger jetliners, sending two of the planes smashing into New York City's Trade Center. But it's also the anniversary of other events. On 1776, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and Edward Rutledge traveled to Staten Island, New York, to meet Britain's Admiral Lord Richard Howe in a bid to negotiate an end to the American Revolution. On this day in history, 1789, Alexander Hamilton is appointed the first Secretary of the Treasury. And on this day in 1936, Boulder Dam, now Hoover Dam, begins operation as President Franklin Delano Roosevelt presses a key in Washington to signal the startup of the dam's first hydroelectric generator. On this day in 1941, groundbreaking uh, takes place for the Pentagon. In 1985, Pete Rose breaks the all-time Major League Baseball record for hits with his 4,192nd hit, surpassing Ty Cobb. On this day in 1998, Congress releases Kenneth Starr's voluminous report that offers graphic details of President Clinton's alleged misconduct and levels accusations of perjury and obstruction of justice. The president's attorney quickly issues a point-by-point rebuttal. 
On this day in 2012, the Benghazi attacks, the mob armed with guns and grenades launches a night-long attack on a U.S. diplomatic outpost and a CIA annex in Benghazi, Libya, killing U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens, Information Officer Sean Smith, and two CIA operatives, Glenn Doherty and Tyrone Woods, both former Navy SEALs. In other news, in a major win for the Trump administration, the Supreme Court issued an order late today ending all injunctions that had blocked the White House's ban on asylum for anyone trying to enter the United States by traveling through a third country, such as Mexico, without seeking protection there. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, long a liberal bastion that has aggressively reshaped into a more moderate court by the Trump administration, handed the uh, president a partial victory in the case on Monday by ending the nationwide injunction. But the Ninth kept the injunction alive within the territorial boundaries of the circuit, which encompasses California, Arizona, Alaska, Hawaii, Montana, Nevada, Idaho, Guam, Oregon, and Washington. It didn't rule on the merits of the case. That will come at some point in the future. And Republican Dan Bishop eked out a win in a special election Tuesday in a longtime GOP House district in North Carolina that had become a harbinger of the 2020 general election. The narrow victory provides bragging rights for the president, but also a moral victory for Democrats who came close to flipping a district that's been a Republican hands for more than 50 years. With 99 percent of the precincts reporting, Mr. Bishop captured 50.9 percent of the vote to Democrat Dan McCready, 48.5 percent. The Republican margin of victory was 4,000. 160 votes. They had been in a neck and neck race heading into Election Day. Their closely watched race pitted Mr. Bishop's pro-Trump campaign against Mr. McCready's run as a moderate Democrat, hoping to ride to Washington on an anti-Trump wave building in the Charlotte suburbs. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Uh, Michael Lefebvre, he is the author of The Liturgy of Creation, Understanding Calendars in the Old Testament Context. really is a fascinating book. I hope I do justice in our conversation. That's coming up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, how were holidays chosen and taught in biblical Israel? And what did they have to do with the creation narrative? Well, my next guest, Michael Lefebvre, considers the calendars of the Pentateuch, arguing that dates were added to Old Testament narratives, not as journalistic details, but to teach sacred rhythms of labor and worship. He then applies this insight to the creation week, finding that the days of creation also serve a liturgical purpose. It is a fascinating book. Well, Dr. Lefebvre is pastor of Christ Church Reformed Presbyterian in Brownsburg, Indiana, adjunct professor of Old Testament at Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and fellow of the Center for Pastor Theologians. His book includes, books rather, include collections, codes, and Torah, Singing the Songs of Jesus, and Our Triune God, co-authored with Phil Riken. He is also a contributor to the Oxford Encyclopedia of the Bible and Law. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, The Liturgy of Creation, Understanding Calendars in the Old Testament Context. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Georgine. It's nice to be with you. I, I, I so enjoyed the book, and I, there are chapters I need to go back and reread and read again, and I uh, fear yeah. that I'm not going to do your book justice, so bear with me as I attempt to, <laughs> to um, fascinate our listeners as much as I was fascinated by the book that you have written. In the introduction, you um, give us a glimpse into the different ways that we consider the calendar and time from those in, the, uh, in ancient Israel, and you begin by talking about the uh, synoptic Gospels and contrasting that with John and the telling of the story of Jesus' um, uh, crucifixion and resurrection that gives us an, an understanding of the different way of looking at, at, at time, if you will. Can you give our listeners just a little glimpse into that controversy that might help us better understand um, the, the thesis of your book? Yes, I'd be, I'd be glad to. This is uh, uh, one of those uh, controversies that uh, New Testament scholars have often uh, wrestled with, uh, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all uh, uh, tell us about the uh, crucifixion of Jesus, uh, giving a certain timeline, uh, specifically uh, saying that he was crucified. Um, uh, so he had the, uh, the Last Supper with his disciples uh, on Passover, and they describe that as the Passover meal, uh, at which he then holds the uh, communion supper, and then he's crucified the next day. Uh, John, curiously, tells the story a little differently. Uh, he tells us that uh, uh, he has the last couple of disciples. He tells us nothing about a communion uh, table at that dinner. 
Uh, but then tells us that Jesus was crucified at the time the Passover lambs were being sacrificed or the Passover meal that next night. And so scholars have often debated, you know, why do we have two different timelines here? Is one of them wrong? Um, uh, but of course, the answer is not that one is wrong and one is right. They're both showing us that Jesus is the Passover lamb, the fulfillment of the Passover sacrament. It's just that in, in our way of telling history in the modern world, we tend to be very specific about, uh, 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 you know, being precise about our dates. Uh, but in, in uh, Old Testament and New Testament uh, writings and history, um, sometimes you can ascribe the date uh, in order to be part of the meaning and interpretation of the text. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke want to show us that uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb by telling us about the communion table uh, there at Passover before he goes on the cross. John shows us the same thing but by showing us Jesus dying on the cross the same time the Passover lambs were being slaughtered before the Passover meal. So the timing is different, but not because one is right and one is wrong, but rather they're both showing us the same truth in a different way. And that just illustrates the way that time can be used as part of the storytelling device uh, in ancient writing, a little differently than we're used to in our own day and age. Yeah, you make the point that a contemporary historian would treat a festival date like Passover as a fixed, immovable part of the story's framework, and that it sort of grates on the uh, uh, the uh, modern way of looking at things, but we need to adjust to better understand the, the time period that we're, um, that we're looking at. Yes, it's always important to read a text within its own context. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just a basic principle of interpretation uh, of any text, not just Scripture, but especially Scripture because it's so important to us. So we need to understand it in its own context. Now, in the book, you look at a series of dated events uh, from throughout the Pentateuch before focusing on the seven dated creation events in Genesis 1, um, uh, chapter verses 1 through, or I should say, chapter 1 through chapter 2. Why is it important for us to understand calendars in the Old Testament and how that tells us something about the rhythm of life and worship that we are called to even in the 21st century? Yeah, well, one of the uh, ongoing discussions about Genesis 1, uh, the creation of calendar, is what kind of a text is it? Uh, Is it a historical narrative? in which case we expect to read it according to certain principles of interpreting a historical narrative. Uh, is it poetry, in which case we would expect to interpret it according to certain rules of poetry? Uh, but one of the uh, uh, approaches that is, is surprisingly not given enough attention, uh, but coming out of my own background, I did my PhD work in, in ancient Near Eastern and Old Testament law. So coming out of that background, I wanted to write a book that helps us to think about uh, calendars throughout the Pentateuch, but then especially in Genesis 1, uh, as, as, as law texts, as legal texts. I mean, the, the Bible itself tells us that the, the Pentateuch was Israel's law, and uh, so this first chapter is itself appointing a calendar. It's a kind of a, a legal narrative. Um, I, I suppose if we were to illustrate in our own day, if you think about the United States Constitution, which tells us about the various branches of government and their responsibilities, uh, the second article tells us about the presidency and in very, you know, typical legalese lines out what the president's responsibilities and, and authorities are. Think of if, what, if, what if our founding fathers wrote that second uh, article of the Constitution with some of those legalese statements, but also throwing in some stories about George Washington in order to teach us what the presidency looks like and how it's supposed to operate and what its authorities are with stories of George Washington. That's the way the Pentateuch works. The Pentateuch is Israel's law, and it teaches us its law, not just in the statutes, which we're used to reading as law, but also in the narratives. And so in the narratives, uh, in my book, I look at 21 dated events all through the Pentateuch to show how those narratives are teaching Israel their festival calendar. Uh, Just like in our society, we appoint certain uh, holidays by law. We have 10 holidays that are federally appointed by law. Similarly, the Torah, the Pentateuch, is appointing certain festival dates in its law, but it's doing so with narratives. And uh, and so that's an important way to then approach these dates, which I now bring back to Genesis 1 to show how this also is appointing 
a legal calendar for observance of the Sabbath day uh, using the stories uh, of creation. Now, for the Jewish community, um, that would be understood. For those of us who are not in the Jewish tr- tradition, we're followers of Jesus, is that same uh, calendar, does that apply to us similarly? And what do we glean from observing the Pentateuch as it spoke to that nation? Yeah, well, you know, we actually it, it, we actually do a very similar thing uh, in, in America today. Uh, of our federal holidays, um, I think six or seven of them, if I remember, are, are remembering historical events, um, like um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, uh, Memorial Day, which remembers the end of the Civil War, um, uh, Independence Day, of course, Thanksgiving Day, Christmas Day. But of those, only two of them are on the exact date of the event it remembers. Uh, Veterans Day is on November 11th, which is the date the armistice went into effect that ended World War One. And Independence Day is on July 4th, which is the date the Declaration of Independence was signed. Um, all the rest of them, we adjust the observance to fit with, you know, a Monday to give a three-day weekend or, or uh, Christmas, which is on the uh, winter solstice or, or other kinds of arrangements. The Old Testament uh, in Israel, they did the exact same thing because, you know, you can't, you can't stop in the middle of, of harvesting, of, of, of working in your fields to have a, a big harvest festival. So all of the festivals are timed with harvest dates. You know, when the grain is ready and brought in, then they can stop their work and feast. It's just that in our day, we'll say um, Martin Luther King uh, Jr. was born on January 15th, but Martin Luther King Jr. Day observed is, uh, what is it, the, uh, the, the third Monday of January or second, whichever one it is. Uh, and, and so we have a distinction between the actual date and the observed date. In Old Testament law, they just did it a little differently, where they would just simply say um, uh, Israel left Egypt on the 14th day of the first month. That may not be the actual date, but that's the observance date, the appointing it into law uh, accordingly. Now, of course, in the New Testament times, you know, we, we look at all these festivals as fulfilled in Jesus. So as Christians, we're not observing uh, those festivals on those very dates. But it's also part of Scripture to teach us about Christ. And the Creation Week is especially important for us because we do still uh, honor uh, the pattern in most Christian traditions of day a week uh, for worship. We're going to need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. Again, we're talking with Michael Lefebvre, author of The Liturgy of Creation. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. Oh, 52 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Michael Lefebvre, he's the author of The Liturgy of Creation, Understanding Calendars in Old Testament Context. It's a, really a fascinating book. Um, the first three chapters of the book, which is uh, part one, lays the groundwork that regards the uh, the calendar of the Old Testament in Israel and how it was organized, why it, it was arranged in the way that it was, and so on, the festivals, how they were timed and all of that. Um, can you talk a little bit about... Um, why that was all done and, and how? Uh, yeah, so, you know, when we think about calendars, we usually think about a chart on the wall, like, you know, with uh, numbers and boxes or on our phones. Uh, but in ancient Israel, the calendar is the sky. You look up at the stars and the sun and the moon, and, uh, and the, the seasonal changes are what determines the actual cadence of life and of time. And... Uh, um, and, and so that's part. That's really the backdrop for us, because the Genesis one calendar, of course, is is teaching us a cadence uh, of labor six days and rest the seventh day to keep all of our work uh, framed in, in worship and uh, in service of God. In the second part of your book, um, covers about three chapters. Uh, you look at narratives in the Pentateuch uh, that are associated with the various festivals of, of Israel's calendar. These are the stories that go along with the dates of the events that That's right. uh, are remembered. Talk a bit about uh, about that. Yeah, so um, like I was saying before the break, uh, when we remember an event on a date different than it happened, uh, we'll remember both the actual date and the observance date. But what the uh, Old Testament does is it takes the uh, stories of the Exodus and of the flood, um, and it retells those stories, but then it attaches events to specific festival dates for observance and doesn't record the actual date on which it happened. 
And that's what in the second part of the book uh, I develop and explain. From there, you apply the lessons um, of the study to Creation Week. And I find that especially fascinating. You um, argue that Creation Week, uh, the narrative, um, is not a chronological account of the original creation event, but is a structured retelling of creation around the pattern of a a model of a farmer. Um, Again, can you explain that and and how that helps us understand sort of the rhythm of life? And, of course, this is where I get into the meat of one of the reasons I wrote the book. Uh I'm I'm an Old Testament scholar, but I'm also a pastor. And and a lot of the discussion about Genesis 1 these days is all debating the science. And, you know, when did, how old is the earth, and and what did the creation sequence literally look like? And uh, what I want to do is free Genesis 1 from those debates about science and recover what the Fourth Commandment teaches us, is that Genesis 1 is given to us uh, to teach us a cadence of life, uh, laboring six days for fruitfulness in God's image as stewards of the earth, and then worshiping him on the seventh day in rest. And that's what the creation week, according to the fourth commandment, is given to us for, not to teach us science, uh, not to teach us necessarily the actual timing and history in which God created, but to teach us the cadence in which we serve him in his creation uh, week by week. And so I'm trying to to explore how the Old Testament itself teaches us to observe and understand the dates in the Pentateuch so we can appreciate the very practical purpose of that creation week and free it from all these debates about science, which is not given to teach us. Let's talk about some of those practical things. What should we glean from an understanding, as you've described it, of creation week that will influence the way we spend our days? Yeah, so if you look at the creation week calendar, um, it shows us, indeed, the Creator Himself working in the day and resting at night, working in the day, resting at night, and ordering. In the first three days, He's ordering domains. He's ordering uh, uh, the, the waters and the land and making everything fruitful. So at the end of the third day, we see that there are trees bearing fruit. He makes the world a fruitful place. And then in the, the last three days, we see the Creator uh, populating the world in love and putting the creatures in their various places, each to each to flourish in its own domain, and then at the end, blessing all the creation to enjoy the fruitfulness of the earth, to eat from it. And then we go into the Sabbath day, the rest, the day of, of, of feasting and, and rest and rejoicing. And so it's really a very simple cadence that teaches us the goodness of God and the Creator which we're to reflect as his image bearers ourselves working through the week to, be, to make this world a beautiful, fruitful place. It teaches us community. It teaches us fruitfulness. It teaches us that God loves beauty and goodness. And that should frame the way we work as his image bearers, always then ending the week with rest and worship, coming back to the Lord and, and thanking him and honoring him as we feast on the goodness he allows us to enjoy from his creation. Mm. What you've described is a challenge to the, the typical 21st century uh, uh-huh. way of living that isn't peaceful. It isn't necessarily beautiful or, or creating <laughs> um, beauty, yeah. but it's harried and it's busy and it's uh, flustered. Um, this is a countercultural way of looking at time and, and choosing to live one's life in the pattern that we find in Scripture. Exactly. And that's one of, as a pastor, one of my frustrations with a lot of the debates about Genesis 1 is, is we miss all that mm-hmm. and just end up debating science. And I want to say, no, 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 this is not what it's about. It's here to, to, to teach us and really to free us to enjoy God's beauty and to try to be ministers of that beauty and creation, not just productivity, but fruitfulness, good order, beauty, these cadences that he models for us in the creation and are taught in the cadence in which we're to observe it, six days working and resting and refreshing in him on the seventh. Mm. Well, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, the book is challenging me and my lifestyle, that harried <laughs> busyness that yeah. doesn't necessarily reflect what uh, what the Scripture teaches. And I appreciate your drawing our attention uh, to that pattern in your book, The Liturgy of Creation, Understanding Calendars in Old Testament Context. I'm going to have to reread it because I think it merits a little more time thinking through yeah, some it, of what you've written. It, it required some kind of rigorous scholarly work, but I tried to write it in a way that uh, the layman can appreciate because it's, it's, it's very, I mean, the, the Genesis 1 text is for the layman, 
And uh, so I'm, I'm trying to address uh, both of the academic to correct some things I think are wrong out there and to encourage a layman. So uh, skip parts that are too uh, deep and, and enjoy and benefit from what you can. Well, I think part of the reason I need to reread it, not because you didn't reach the goal that you desired to reach the layman, but because there are concepts there that are deeper than just a cursory read requires. I need to stop and ponder um, some of what you've I'm written as well. So I p- appreciate that. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to be with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a long it. time since I've been in Portland. So it's nice to be there vicariously this afternoon. <laughs> well, you're welcome back anytime. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Again, uh, Bye. Dr. Michael Lefebvre is the author of The Liturgy of Creation, Understanding Calendars in the Old Testament Context. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part, by the way, by Zero Res. Glad to have you this second hour. This, is, of course, is a very somber day all across the country as we reflect on the events that took place on September 11th, 2001. Some of us remember very vividly. Others of you perhaps were very young or weren't around at the time those events took place. But we always make the declaration that we will not forget. Well, forgetting or or Making the resolve not to forget requires effort on our part, and so today has been a day of reflection for many across the country as we uh, recall those events in visual um, uh, means as well as audio, and we're going to share some of that at the close of today's program as we did at the beginning of today's program, so stick around for that. Well, Acting Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Mark Morgan said on Monday that border apprehensions have steadily decreased in the past three months here in the U.S., giving Mexico credit for its increased cooperation. You'll recall it was a few months back. There was something of an ultimatum, and Mexico has lived up to uh, its bargain, the part that it struck with that um, with that uh, controversy. Well, for the past three months, border crossings have consistently fallen with 64,000 apprehensions in August. That's a 22% drop from July. Now, when you think about 64,000, that still is a staggering number, but that even represents a 22% drop from the month before and a nearly 60% drop from May. Well, the August numbers, this reflects a 56% reduction from the peak in May, which you recall was over 144,000 individuals. Uh, Morgan said at a briefing at the White House, and again, this is Mark Morgan, Acting Customs and Border Protection Commissioner. He attributed that drop in apprehensions, a metric used as a proxy for the number of migrants attempting to enter the country, to President Donald Trump's leadership on border security issues, which has been uh, very um, uh, contentious, uh, to say the least. The president, he said, has made a very made it very clear that he is going to use every tool available to him and this administration to address this unprecedented crisis at the southern border. He said, we've seen historic agreements and policies put in place by this administration, end quote. He also credited regulatory reform, policy changes, interior enforcement efforts for the, de- the decrease in crossings and arrests. Morgan also credited Mexico for its part in decreasing apprehension, saying the government of Mexico is taking meaningful and unprecedented steps to help curb the flow of illegal immigration to our border, uh, noting that Mexico has apprehended nearly 134,000 people so far this year. The country apprehended 83,000 in um, all in 2018. So that is a significant milestone. He said that the U.S. has seen unprecedented support from Mexico, saying the country has started a new National Guard deploying 10,000 troops to its southern border with Guatemala and 15,000 troops to its northern border. Well, thanks to the latest massive budget deal passed by Congress, our nation's fiscal situation is deteriorating, uh, deteriorating rather, even more quickly than before. Uh, That's the main takeaway from the Congressional Budget Office's update economic uh, projections for fiscal year 2019-2029 released on Wednesday of uh, last week. The latest estimates uh, reiterate that the federal government is continuing to live beyond its means. Now, of course, the federal government administers the tax dollars that we are required to pay. So this is actually our money um, and the government is mishandling it insofar as it is living beyond our means. The longer lawmakers delay action to curb wasteful spending, reform unsubstantiated uh, programs, the larger the burden will be for younger and future generations. So if you're uh, content to allow this to continue unabated, future generations will have to deal with it. They may grow to resent you for failing to respond, but there you have it. Well, in May, the Congressional Budget Office projected the deficit would be $896 billion this year and showed it crossing the trillion-dollar threshold in 2022. 
Well, the outlook has worsened significantly in just three months. Now the Congressional Budget Office projects that by the end of September this month, the deficit will be $960 billion and exceed $1 trillion next year. Now keep in mind that wasn't supposed to happen until 2022. Well, the nation's debt trajectory is equally alarming. Debt held by the public was 77.8% of gross domestic product in 2018. But by the end of this month, it's going to be estimated at 79%. And by 2029, debt held by the public is projected to be uh, to reach 95.1% of GDP, an increase of 3.3% points since May. Well, in total, the Congressional Budget Office projects public debt will rise by one uh, by eleven point eight trillion dollars over the next decade. Now, it's hard to grasp these numbers and what they mean, but what it does mean in simpler terms is that we are putting a significant burden on future generations to pay for what we are enjoying now. Well, the problem is not lack of money. The problem is growing spending. The Treasury took in record revenue in fiscal year 2018, and revenue projections for the coming decade dropped only slightly from May. Much of the blame for the worsening projections owes to the passage of the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2019. Note the word bipartisan. It was signed into law in July. The bill was the fourth in a series of two-year agreements to raise the discretionary spending caps that were set by the Budget Control Act of 2011. I'll pause so you can chuckle or weep. Well, the Bipartisan Budget Act increased um, base discretionary spending by $322 billion over two years and effectively killed one of the last semblance of fiscal restraint intended to slow Washington's appetite for spending. And, oh, it is insatiable. Well, the Congressional Budget Office's update best, uh, updated baseline projections are built off um, higher spending levels, meaning it now assumes more discretionary spending each of the next 10 years. The Congressional Budget Office estimates that Deficit impact on the budget deal will be about $1.7 trillion through 2029. Discretionary spending gets most of lawmakers' attention, but it makes up only about one-third of total federal spending. The rest of the federal budget, well, that consists of autopilot programs like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and interest payments on the federal debt. Well, the Congressional Budget Office estimates that by 2029, entitlements and interest payments on the national debt will consume 86% of all federal revenues. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid are driving three-fourths of the total spending growth over the next decade. Well, the federal government's going to spend more on interest payments on the debt than Medicaid in 2023 and nearly eclipse defense spending by 2029. And these interest payment estimates assume that due to lower rates, payments will now be $1.1 trillion less than the May projections. If rates rise, interest costs will consume even more of the budget. And what do you think the chances are that interest rates will rise? Almost inevitable. Well, for lots of people, debt and deficits are just big numbers that don't seem to impact their day-to-day lives, but that is not the case. Without significant reforms to major programs, most Americans over the next 30 years will take home less money as federal debt rises. The Congressional Budget Office recently sent a letter to Representative Steve Womack. He's a Republican from Arkansas. He's the ranking member of the, on the House Committee on the Budget, explaining that if current policy is maintained, gross national product per person will be all $3,400 lower by 2049. You do the math in today's numbers. Well, this is particularly demoralizing for younger and future generations who may never have the same opportunities and economic freedom as their parents and grandparents did. Well, the good news is that uh, Congress and the president have the power to alter this course. The bad news is there seems to be very little or no will at all to do so. In its letter to Womack, the Congressional Budget Office estimated that if lawmakers implemented reforms to lower the national debt to pre-recession levels, gross national product per person would be about $5,500 higher than under current projections. Well, the picture is clear. The current fiscal situation is unsustainable, and the longer reform is delayed, the harsher the impact will be for the current and future generations. But again, there is hope if lawmakers implement spending restraints now, we could each achieve greater economic security. How likely is it? Well, America's future is at a crossroads. It's up to lawmakers to do the hard work of saving our fiscal future, and it's up to taxpayers to demand they do so. I wonder when that's going to happen. I think it's probably pretty unlikely. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, I'll talk about the three long-shot challengers taking on President Trump in the 2020 primaries. They're expected to face off in their own debate later this month. President Trump won't be there. Talking about former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, 
former South Carolina Governor and Congressman Mark Sanford, and former Representative Joe Walsh of Illinois. They've been invited by Business Insider to participate in a debate. We'll tell you more about that when we return in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the three long shot challengers that are taking on President Trump in a 2020 primary, they're expected to face off in their own debate later this month. We're talking again about former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, former South Carolina Governor and Congressman Mark Sanford, and former Representative Joe Walsh of Illinois. They've been invited by Business Insider, and they're going to participate in a debate on the 24th of this month. Well, Weld and Walsh's campaigns uh, say that they're going to be attending the debate. Sanford's campaign was optimistic. Its candidate would also take the stage as long as a scheduling conflict was resolved, and that's probably going to be the case. Well, Business Insider says that the debate will be streamed live on Business Insider today, their daily news show on Facebook Watch. I'm not sure how many people will see it. They added that the president, who has derided his primary opponents as the Three Stooges, was invited to participate but has not responded. Well, the political landscape has changed immeasurably since Donald Trump ran and was elected president, says Nicholas Carlson, the global editor-in-chief of Insider Inc. It's vitally important to have an honest conversation about what it means to be a Republican in the era of Trump. Our debate will be a valuable part of that discussion. Well, it may it well be, but whether or not it's seen by anyone is the larger question. And Optimistic Weld says that uh, we're, we already have our first televised debate signed up for, and that's going to add a new dimension to the race. And I think it's going to be harder and harder for Trump's, uh, the Trump forces to ignore the fact that 2020 is an election year. I'm not sure Trump is ignoring the fact that 2020 is an election year. He may be ignoring you as a candidate, but that's a separate matter. The announcement comes days after a move by the Republican Party in South Carolina and Nevada, two of the first four states that kick off the presidential primary and caucus calendar to not hold their own nominating contest next year. The Republican Party in Kansas also announced they won't be holding their caucus either. Well, Weld, who launched a primary challenge against the president way back in April, argued uh, this week that the scrap of the contest is a sign that the president's re-election campaign and the Republican National Committee are starting to worry about the multiple primary challenges. That's one interpretation. Uh, it indicates that there's a nervousness in Washington, D.C., and I think for good reason, he told uh, Fox News after holding a campaign event in the first in the nation presidential primary state of New Hampshire. Walsh is a longtime conservative um, the radio talk show host, was less diplomatic, saying on Twitter that Trump was acting like a mob boss. Uh, This is wrong. This is undemocratic. This is what a political party does when it serves a king, he said. A bit self-serving, but nonetheless. Walsh also said it's disappointing. We should never take our cues from North Korea on shutting down elections and people's chances to make their voices heard. Of course, the election will take place as scheduled. South Carolina's unique place as the first Republican primary in the South is being uh, lost next year to accommodate the president's re-election or electoral hopes, he went on to say. He added, this means South Carolina Republicans in all corners of our state will lose voice. Uh, They have uh, had in the past in the national debate. It also means the very ideas debated in Republican circles will be weaker given the way ideas are made stronger through debate and examination. It is uh, all unnecessary, but certainly consistent with the president's uh, less than democratic style, end quote. Well, the Trump campaign communications director said that these are decisions made entirely by state parties and there are volumes of historical precedents to support them. He also emphasized that the president will dominate and prevail in whatever contest is placed before him. We'll keep an eye and ear open to see what happens next in those would-be contests. Meanwhile, as you know, San Francisco, the sanctuary city for illegal illegal aliens, now crowded with homeless uh, people camping and Well, all sorts of things on the sidewalk you wouldn't want to step over or in has just declared the National Rifle Association a domestic terrorist organization. Well, that resolution with the Board of Supervisors passed unanimously urged the rest of the country to do the same. The resolution accuses the NRA of mustering its considerable wealth and organizational strength to promote gun ownership and incite gun owners to act Acts of violence. Now, to promote gun ownership, responsible gun ownership, they provide training and all of that, but to incite gun owners to acts of violence? 
Well, it accuses the NRA of spreading propaganda aimed at deceiving the public about the dangers of gun violence. It says NRA leaders promote extremist positions in defiance of the views of a majority of its membership and the public and undermine the general welfare. And it says NRA advocacy has armed terrorists. There hasn't been a link between the NRA and any of the mass shootings, for example. But nonetheless, they went on to say all countries have violent and hateful people, but only in America do we give them ready access to assault weapons and large capacity magazines, thanks in large part to the National Rifle Association's influence. Well, the National Rifle Association's lobbying arm says it's committed to preserving the right of all law-abiding individuals, emphasize law-abiding, to purchase, possess, and use firearms for legitimate purposes as guaranteed by the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which, by the way, is subject to amendment. The NRA promotes training, safety, and education for law-abiding gun owners, and far from inciting acts of violence, it strongly condemns such acts. Well, nevertheless, San Francisco Supervisor Catherine Stefani, the resolution's author, says the NRA has uh, has it coming to them. She says the NRA exists to spread disinformation and knowingly puts weapons in the hands of those who would uh, harm and terrorize us. Well, the NRA, for its part, decided it's um, going to fight back. The National Rifle Association sued San Francisco on Monday of this week over the city's recent declaration. The suit filed in U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California accuses city officials of violating the gun lobby's free speech rights for political reasons and says the city is seeking to blacklist anyone associated with the NRA. It asked the court to step in to instruct elected officials that freedom of speech means you cannot silence or punish those with whom you disagree. Well, as I mentioned last week, the Board of Supervisors passed a resolution calling the NRA a domestic terrorist organization. This um, action is an assault on all advocacy organizations across the country. William Brewer III, the NRA lawyer, said uh, there can be no place in our society for this manner of behavior by government officials. Fortunately, the NRA, like all U.S. citizens, is protected by the First Amendment. Well, San Francisco's resolution follows some recent high-profile shootings, including one in Gilroy, California, about 80 miles southeast of San Francisco, where a gunman entered a festival with an AK-style long gun, killing three people, injuring 17 before killing himself. Since that shooting and on uh, the 28th of July, there have been at least three others across the country, El Paso, Dayton, and in the West Texas towns of Odessa and Midland. San Francisco's supervisor said she drafted the resolution after the Gilroy shooting, driven in part by the vision of one of those killed while playing in a bouncy house at the festival. Uh, Stefani told the AP that she believes the lawsuit is a desperate move by a very desperate organization, taking note of those allegations by some NARA members. I truly believe their time is up. Well, the courts will decide, and as to whether or not their time is up, that's not very likely. Jim... um, Garrity says this, San Francisco city leaders try to redefine the word terrorist to mean people who we disagree with on gun policy. The fight over um, uh, we live in a time, he went on to say, when authorities attempt to brazenly redefine the meaning of words by sheer force of will right before our eyes. By a unanimous vote, San Francisco's Board of Supervisors have passed a resolution declaring the NRA a domestic terrorist organization and urging other cities to follow the example. The resolution also orders city employees to take every reasonable step to limit business interactions with the NRA and its supporters. First, does the city of San Francisco have any business interaction uh, business interaction with the NRA. Did the supervisors even bother to look before passing the resolution, or were they too high on performance outrage to even ask? But let's assume the guy who heads uh, the company that makes the orange traffic cones that the city uses is an NRA member and big donor of the organization. Would the city cancel a contract for more traffic cones over the guy's support of the NRA? Federal courts have overturned agency decisions to cancel contracts over perceived bias against a contractor, even when the contract was behind schedule. Objectivity must be the hallmark of any decision to terminate for default. Therefore, government personnel should remember to focus on the facts and make every attempt to work with the contractor before taking steps to terminate for cause, end quote. Well, a contractor who lost a job primarily because of his support for the NRA would probably have a winning court case. But back to the label of domestic terror organization. You don't have to like the NRA to recognize that it does not even remotely fit the definition of a domestic terrorist organization. What these 11 lawmakers mean to say is that they loathe the NRA and vehemently oppose their views on the Second Amendment and the right to own a gun. 
They're free to have those views, but they do not have the authority to declare someone else a terrorist for having that different view. Well, these city supervisors aren't the FBI. They're not the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, and they're not the National Counterterrorism Center. Terrorism is a crime, not merely a viewpoint. Being a member of a Occupy Wall Street does not make you a terrorist. Being a member of Occupy Wall Street and planning to blow up a bridge makes you a terrorist. Being a Trump supporter does not make you a terrorist. Being a Trump supporter and mailing pipe bombs to people you see as the enemy does make you a terrorist. Can anyone in San Francisco grasp the danger in letting politicians declare by proclamation that those who have committed no crimes but who have differing views are terrorists? Can anyone over there imagine how this mentality could turn out badly for someone they like? For example, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib wanted to go to Israel on a trip sponsored by Mitva, an organization that runs articles contending the Jews use the blood of Christians in Jewish Passover. And an American neo-Nazi screed about how Jews control the media, as well as praising suicide bombers, Palestinian terrorists, and bus hijackers who killed people, not metaphorical terrorists. Omar and Tlaib were associating with some really unsavory characters. Now, this doesn't make the Congresswomen terrorists, but if we all decide to follow the San Francisco City Supervisor's example, we can label them terrorists morning, noon, and night. There's no way that could possibly lead to something bad, right? Leaders of the NRA frequently argue that they're the only organization in America who is regularly blamed for the actions of people who aren't members. I imagine that when they say that, somewhere the Koch Network, APAC, Focus on the Family, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, National Right to Life, grumble, hey, it's no picnic over here either. But being declared terrorist by a city government might take the cake. This is the same city government that wants to restrict the use of words like felon and convict applied to felons who are convicts. Some examples include changing felon and offender to returning resident or formerly incarcerated person. A parolee could be described as a person under supervision. Convict could be referred to as a currently incarcerated person, while juvenile offender or delinquent would be described as a young person impacted by the justice system. The city government wants to take it easier on people who have actually broken the law while vehemently demonizing people who have not broken the law. Welcome to politics in San Francisco. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the CEO of Stem Express, uh, which is a um, an abortion mill, and they deal in baby body parts, Admitted in court last Thursday that her biotech company supplies beating fetal hearts and intact fetal heads to medical researchers. Now think about that for a moment. She also admitted at the preliminary hearing of David DeLayden and Sandra Merritt of the Center for Medical Progress that the baby's heads could be procured attached to the baby's body or could be torn away. I apologize for failing to give a warning before making this pronouncement because this is clearly very disturbing. Again, I apologize. Um, That is an especially gruesome admission, but it begs the question, how did they get these fully intact human children? That's a question asked by Peter Breen of the Thomas More Society that's representing Daleiden at this hearing. Now, this is uh, to determine whether or not this pair broke the law in the state of California. If you have a fetus with an intact head and an intact body and intact extremities, that is something that would indicate the child was born alive and then had their organs cut out of them, and that the child was the victim of an illegal partial birth abortion, he told uh, LifeSite News. Both of these are gruesome and violent acts. Well, Delighton and Merritt are charged with 15 felony counts of illegal taping of confidential information in connection with undercover videos they released back in 2015 after a three-year covert investigation into the buying and selling of baby body parts, which is a felony. Now, interestingly enough, they're being charged with uh, potentially charged with the uh, felon felonious acts for disclosing the information as uh, journalists. Uh, but the acts themselves are not uh, being uh, charged. The covertly recorded videos exposed STEM Express and others as the uh, go to in California for Planned Parenthood's trafficking of baby body parts. And the biotech company cut its ties with Planned Parenthood shortly after The videos were released. Now, why they would do that if nothing was wrong, one might ask. Well, CMP's legal team is arguing in the preliminary hearing that the law does not consider conversations that can be overheard confidential 
And that that um, covert recording is allowed when done to investigate violent crimes. Well, on Thursday, and again, this is of last week, the court saw video clips of the STEM Express CEO identified as Doe number 12 meeting in May of 2015 with Delighton and Merritt, who were posing as owners of a biotech company. Doe number 12 says in the video there's a great demand for raw fetal tissue and that the insanely fragile neural or brain tissue is best shipped in a whole Al Calvarium or head, whereupon Delayden says, "Just make sure the eyes are closed." Yeah, laughs Doe number twelve. Tell the lab tech, uh, techs it's coming. It's almost like they don't want to uh, to know what it is. Doe twelve was far less forthcoming in her testimony on Thursday than she was in that conversation. One thing we've observed throughout these proceedings is that these witnesses were much more candid when they spoke to David and Susan on the undercover video than they are on the stand. He told LifeSite News. However, we have been uh, been able to establish certain facts that are important through their testimony, and when they deviate from the video, we've been able to use the video to show that they are not telling the truth on the stand. So they've been useful not only in exposing what's happening. But in affirming uh, what was said during those uh, conversations, that's important to show that the attorney general is using witnesses who are willing to stretch the truth. And our side is exposing that truth. Mr. Breen went on to say he told the court that STEM Express was mentioned in connection with Stanford University studies. Uh, where Langendorf um, perfusion was used, a technique that requires a beating heart. Now, again, think about that for a moment, a beating heart. Does STEM Express supply fetal hearts to Stanford, he asked Doe number 12. She hesitated to answer because she said there's so much targeting of researchers. However, Judge Christopher Height told her the question was relevant. Yes, we have provided heart tissue to Stanford, Doe 12 said. She also admitted that uh, the photos are accurate and that sometime a baby's intact calvarium is attached to the baby's body and sometimes it's not. And again, we're talking about the head. In another key exchange, Doe 12 testified that her company requests that parties sign a non-disclosure agreement or NDA before discussing business. But while Doe 12 met with Delayden and Merritt in late May, the NDA uh, for the meeting was signed in late June, clearly a month after, according to an email from STEM Express and CMP that Breen produced in court. Nor was uh, Doe 12 able to produce evidence that um, NDA had been sent to Delayden and Merritt before the meeting. Well, after talking about how important it was, the only evidence in the record is that the um, nondisclosure agreement was not sent out until a month after this supposedly highly confidential meeting. Uh, So that was a significant point as well. Well, it goes on from there. Uh, but throughout this hearing, um, much of what has been said, for example, uh, said about the video, for example, that it had been doctored, uh, that it had been edited. Uh, Doe number nine was forced on the stand under oath to admit that, no, the video had not been altered. Much of the media reporting on it had suggested that that was the case. Uh, she had to admit that, no, it had not been altered, that what she is uh, saying on the tape, what is seen and heard on the tape was accurate Uh, and had not been altered in any way. So this has been uh, certainly a a case to clear the two individuals who were responsible for exposing this travesty, but it's also uh, been an opportunity to confirm that what has been reported was, in fact, accurate. Meanwhile, Facebook has removed yet another LifeSite news post on hate speech grounds, this time suggesting it's beyond the pale to argue that children should not be given puberty blockers. Now, we don't know the long-term impacts of puberty blockers, and many in the medical community are arguing that we, um, we're moving too quickly based on ideological grounds rather than good, sound medical science. Well, on the 1st of August, LifeSite published an article by Radiance Foundation founder Ryan Bomberger criticizing TV personality Mario Lopez for apologizing to pro-LGBT activists who were outraged that he said children were too young to decide whether they should transition to another gender. Now, that uh, might have seemed like a very reasonable statement just a few years back. As parents, something should stir inside of us to see this for what it is, brokenness, Bromberger argued. While mainstream media celebrated an 11-year-old boy in drag being sexualized in a gay bar, who by who would be celebrating the same if it were a dad hustling his 11-year-old daughter in a gentleman's club? This week, Facebook notified LifeSite that it had removed a LightSite uh, post uh, linking the article because it violated community standards, specifically the platform's definition of hate speech as any direct attack on people based on what we call protected 
characteristics, including gender identity. So arguing the science behind this and the appropriateness of certain actions is no longer permitted. We define attacked as violence or dehumanizing speech, statements of inferiority or calls for exclusion or segregation, Facebook declared, none of which applied to this article. Well, LiveSite News sought another review only to receive another notification later on Tuesday that the post was still removed and the review case was marked closed with no option to um, uh, f- to see further details. So this kind of reasoned conversation will no longer be permitted. Meanwhile, I noted in Newsmax magazine that um, standing against psychiatry's craze by those within the uh, community has become much more um, uh, challenging. In 1979, Dr. Paul McHugh closed the sex change clinic at St. John, at uh, rather John Hopkins, uh, in the 80s, he testified against phony recovered memory, uh, memories, and he hasn't given up. Uh, you might have heard this joke. A man in a car gets a call from his wife. Honey, be careful, she says. The car is going the wrong way on the highway. He replies, it's not just one car. It's hundreds of them. Well, if um, if it were a psychiatrist joke, Dr. Paul McHugh, who's now 88, could be that driver, a professor at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and a tenacious skeptic of the crazies. Uh, the crazes, rather, that periodically overtake his speciality. He has often served as psychiatry's most outspoken critic. Either he's crazy or all the other psychiatrists are. Um, and while I don't have time to go into much detail, he is arguing uh, that we are moving uh, quickly apace on things we don't know that has the potential to harm particularly young people um, and uh, would make that uh, make that same case. Again, I don't have enough time to uh, to go into it, so I'll leave it at that for now, and we'll return to it on another occasion, because I think it's worth uh, mentioning the fight that he has been engaged in since 1979 and continues at 88, attempting to um, rest the profession that he has championed and been a, a significant part of for decades from the ideological tug-of-war that it's currently uh, caught in. All right, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, I want to uh, remind you that we're going to take one last reflection on the the occasion, today being September 11th, remembering 2001. Some of us remember very vividly those events. For younger people who were perhaps very young at the time or weren't even here at the time of those events 18 years ago, um, we have to be vigilant if we live up to this statement that we will never forget. We must give others an opportunity to remember. So we're going to spend the bulk of our final segment today focusing on those events. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, of course, today we have solemnly marked the anniversary of the September 11th, 2001 attack on our nation when 2,977 innocents, mostly American citizens, were murdered by 19 Islamic fascists. The presidential proclamation has flags flying at half staff in memory of those who perished, and we want to reflect back on those events as well. Before we do that, I want to remind you tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with uh, Charles Krismeyer, author of Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. We'll also talk with Justin Farrell of Better Dads. A father-daughter conference is coming up. We'll make sure you have all the important details. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.